If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, if you turn to Psalm 110, 110, and um, also, if you have a pen or a pencil or something that you can mark it with, just go on and find the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and we're going to begin in Psalm 110, and we'll we'll spend the most of our time um, in the book of Hebrews this morning. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to apologize, I'm just going to warn you in advance, I'm going to run through a lot of scripture this morning, and... Um, I, I, when I type up my outlines for, for Zena to put on the screen, sometimes I, I, I feel almost guilty um, for using so many scripture references. But I thought this week, that's what we need more of. We just need more of God's word and less of man's opinion. Um, we, need, we, need, we need more um, of thus saith the Lord than we do entertainment and articulation in the pulpit. The, the power of God is in his word, not in... Not in uh, my interpretation of it. Um, interpretation, I think, is important and preaching is important. God said he, he chose the foolishness of preaching to save um, those um, who don't believe. But at the same time, I, I don't think we get enough of God's Word saturating our lives. So we're going to spend a good bit of time um, in Hebrews this morning. I started a series last week. I told you we're just going to make much of Jesus in December. And we make much of Jesus all the time. But in December, we're going to focus on Jesus, not on us, but on Him uh, not on what we need to do, but on what he has done and what he is doing. And, um, and so um, that's my purpose. We just sang a song, Jesus, Messiah. And um, I hate to tell you, I've been preaching 28 years and didn't realize that the word Messiah has only been used four times in Scripture. Um, and, and, and we often refer to Jesus as the Christ. And I also didn't realize um, that Christ and Messiah are synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. In fact, if you look up the word um, Christ um, in a Strong's Concordance, the Greek word, um, Christ is the English word for the Greek word Christos and um, Strong's Concordance will point you all the way back to the Old Testament to the word Messiah um, which is the English translation of the Hebrew word I think you pronounce it Mashiach but both of those terms mean anointed and more specifically when they're talking about um, Jesus the anointed one when they're talking about the Messiah or the Christ or the one that God promised um, he is the anointed one there are three main offices in the Old Testament that were anointed, um, where there was actually a bottle of oil brought out and hands laid upon them, or oil poured over their head, and an announcement made that this is who they were. And those are the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And all of these were chosen, uh, were chosen by God, were called by God, and consecrated by God, and the anointing of oil was the sign of that upon their life. And it becomes very clear when you look at the New Testament that all of those offices in the Old Testament were a picture and a type or a symbol of the work and the ministry that the Anointed One, that Christ the Anointed One would perform um, on earth and in heaven. So all of those things in the Old Testament, whether it was prophet, priest, or king, all of those were a foretaste of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about Christ as being the prophet. The consummate revelation of God. Um, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's, what the, that's how John introduced him in his gospel. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he went on to say that, um, that the, in the beginning the Word um, was with God and the Word was God. And that Word came and dwelt among us in a flesh and blood body. And, um, and, and he is the consummate revelation of who God is. The final revelation of who God is. He spoke with, um, he spoke with humility. 
from his humanity. He spoke with authority because of his divinity. And he spoke with finality because he is the final judge. And he has the last word. And the scripture says that we are to hear what he says or we will be held accountable um, for not hearing him. Today we're going to look at Christ as the priest. Um, just to kind of summarize, I'm trying to make this easy for you to wrap your mind around and reflect back on. As a prophet, as a prophet, Christ reveals God to men. He is a representative of God to men. He reveals God to men. That was his, that's the responsibility of the Old Testament prophet, and that is the role and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you might say as a prophet that he speaks to men for God. He speaks to men for or on behalf of God. But when you look at his role as a priest, as the priest of God, his calling is to redeem or reconcile men to God. He is a redeemer and a reconciler. He stands um, between God and man as the mediator between us. And so as a priest, he speaks to God for men. As a prophet, he speaks for God to men. As a priest, he speaks to God for men. It's just kind of a, almost a role reversal um, in that he has a ministry coming and going for us, coming from God and going to God um, on our behalf. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And Paul is pointing us to Jesus' role as a priest as a mediator who stands between God and men. Genesis chapter 14, verse 8. I'm going to get to Psalm 110, I promise. You don't have to turn these verses. But Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 is the first mention of a priest in the Bible. And we, when we studied Abraham a few months back, we, we, we came across this story in our studies. And um, I could preach a whole sermon on this guy, but I'm not going to. Um, the first mention of the word priest in the Bible is a mysterious man that came and met um, Abraham as he was coming back after a great victory. Um, the, those, those people had taken Lot, his nephew, captive, and Abraham went after them and rescued them and spoiled um, those cities of the plain. And, um, and on the way back, this guy named Melchizedek met him and blessed him in the name of God Most High and the Bible says that Abraham paid tithes to him. So when you think about Melchizedek, the law had not yet been given. The temple, the, the, the temple had not been built. The tabernacle had not even been built. Um, there, 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 were, there was no priesthood. There was no Aaron. There were, there were no Levites. The whole Jewish nation was still in the loins of Abraham, or at least they hadn't been born yet. Um, he, had, uh, he had Isaac, but he didn't, that was it. Jacob hadn't been born yet. So um, the law, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices of, the, of Leviticus, none of those things were present. But the Bible still called Melchizedek the priest of the Most High God. His name literally means um, king of righteousness. And the Bible tells us that he was the king of a place named Salem, which is peace. That's what Salem means. And so ultimately we get this man who is referred to as both a king and a priest of the Most High God. And um, his name means king of righteousness and he is the king of a city named Peace. So ultimately he's identified as a righteous king who ruled over a city that would one day become the Jewish city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem simply means city of peace. 
And, and Melchizedek was already there ruling and reigning. Now, I don't have time. We don't have time to get into this. This is just an interesting study. Melchizedek was either Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate form, which I personally believe he was. I personally believe that Jesus showed up that day to welcome Abraham back uh, and to bless him in the name of the Most High God and to re receive tithes of him. I believe it was Jesus before his birth. If that, if that is not the case, then he is at least a picture and type of Christ and a picture and type of the priesthood of Christ specifically. Psalm chapter 110 is the most often... I didn't know this. It's been a good study for me already. I've already learned a lot of things myself. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And verse 1 and verse 4 are the most quoted verses of Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Verse 1 begins like this. The Lord, and if you'll notice if you have a, a, a King James Bible, that that word is all capitalized. There's a reason for that. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord said unto my Lord, and that word is not all capitalized, and there's a reason for that. This is what the Lord said unto David's Lord. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Literally that verse reads like this. The Yahweh, the Jehovah, that is the personal name of God, of the God of Israel. The Yahweh said unto my, that's David, the Yahweh said unto my Adonai, which is master, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies your footstool. That's a literal translation of that. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to read the next three verses in just a minute, but let me, let me say this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus quotes that passage of scripture with a question attached to it. The Jewish people were looking for a king that would be a son of David. And Jesus was biologically, if you look at his lineage, he was in the lineage of David. But the Jews were looking for a king, a physical, earthly, ruling king that would be a descendant of David. And Jesus is straightening out some of their theology in some of this. And so he asked the question, if the king that you're looking for is going to be David's son, why did David call him Lord? If the, if, if, David, if the king that you're looking for is a descendant of David, then why did David call him master? I never expect any of my sons or grandsons... I, I, I'd never expect them to expect me to call them master or Lord over my life. In fact, you would look at that father, that grandfather, that king that ruled. David was the king that, that literally was the marker for all other kings. Um, it would be him that would be exalted. But David said, Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool in Acts chapter 2 verse 34 and 35 in the first sermon that was preached on the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost Peter 
connected Jesus to this passage of Scripture in Psalm 110.1. He, he connected Jesus with the Lord who would sit at the Father's right hand until his enemies were made his footstool. So he connected Jesus to the prophecy of Psalm 110. Now I said all that to say this. From the first verse to the last verse, this psalm is about the Messiah. This whole psalm is about Jesus. It's not about David. And I think that's what Jesus is correcting from the Jewish hymn book. Listen, you're, you're not looking for just another man. You're looking for the one that's coming to rule and reign forever and forever. And he is going to be both a king and a priest to you. And that's what the next uh, three verses say. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. But if you look at verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. And here's the next most quoted verse from Psalm 110 in the New Testament. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David is writing in those verses of a king that would rule, who would also be a priest. And if you read the rest of the uh, psalm, he is also identified as a warrior. And when he comes back, he will be a warrior king. So David is identifying this, this master, this Adonai, as being one who would be a king and a priest, and his priesthood would be after the order of Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14. That's the only place he's mentioned besides Psalm 110 and besides the book of Hebrews. So, we're facing to dive into this, so hold on. I'm going to have you in Hebrews back and forth, all right? I'm, and I, I don't want you just to take my word for it. I want you to look at God's word, all right? I want you to look at these verses. Um, the book of Hebrews says more about the priesthood of Christ than any other portion of the New Testament. It clearly identifies him as a priest, and it clearly identifies him as a priest that is after the order of Melchizedek. Um, the Aaronic priesthood has ended. The Levitical priesthood has ended. The priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ has not ended. It goes on forever uh, and forever. The first priesthood was all earthly. The final priesthood is all heavenly. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to I show you some things from the book of Hebrews about the Lord Jesus Christ who is our great high priest. First of all, um, he was appointed by God. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, um, verses 4 and 5. Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 5. And he's talking about the priesthood here. No man taketh this honor unto himself. Remember what I talked about the anointing. They are chosen by God. They are called by God. They are consecrated by God. No man taketh this honor unto himself, um, but he that is called of God, like Aaron was called of God. Then he identifies Christ. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, that's the father that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And he saith, he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's just one of four places in the book of Hebrews he's identified as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So priests did not choose the office for themselves. They didn't say, hey, I want to be a priest. They didn't raise their hand, volunteer. Um, they were not appointed by men. They, were, they could not be elected by men. In fact, there's some, there's some evidence in the Old Testament that men that tried to take that role for themselves wound up dead. 
They were not qualified to be priests. God did not choose them to be priests. God did not call them to be priests. God did not consecrate them to be priests. And when they took the priesthood in their own hands, they, had, they suffered because of it. Uzziah was a king and a good king. But when he took it upon himself to exercise a role of a priest, he was smitten with leprosy because God didn't call him to be that. So this, this is what it says, that Jesus was appointed by God. He didn't choose the office. He didn't volunteer for the office. He was chosen for the office. He was called to the office. He was consecrated to the office by God himself. And the Bible tells us that that occurred before God ever created the world. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was appointed as the redeemer and the reconciler of man as the lamb that would be slain for our sins. We'll say more about that in a minute. Verse 5 also, however, points us to another truth that's very pertinent to us in this time of year because God said to him, you are a son and you have been begotten of me, which brings me to the second point about Christ as a priest. And I mentioned this last week and I'm going to probably mention it every week that we're here talking about Jesus is that he was both human and divine. He was both God and he was man. He was the God man. Um, he, he had that, 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 that dual function as he ministered to us here on earth. He was begotten of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For verily he, that's talking about Jesus, took not on him the nature of angels. He did not appear in the form of an angel. He was more than a spiritual being. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him, it behooved Christ to be made like unto his brethren, that's us, that he, Christ, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. He was divine and he was human. Listen to me. Jesus was, is, and always will be the Son of God. Forever existed with God. He, 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 he was, he is, and he always will be God. But he was also begotten of God as a man, and he has become now the Son of Man. The reason for that is twofold, and it's mentioned in those verses. The first reason is so that he could provide the sacrifice for sin. Actually, I'm reversing the order a little bit. Um, he was made a man so that he could provide the sacrifice for sin. He was also made a man so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God on behalf of men. So there's a twofold ministry associated with his divinity and his humanity. Verse 18 says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or help them or aid them or assist them that are tempted. So as the Son of Man, Jesus has suffered the same pains that we do, was tempted the same way that we are, in that he was human. But he was also divine. And that, if, you, if you think about those two subjects for a minute, he came for two reasons, to be a sacrifice for our sin and to be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. In order to offer the sacrifice that he made, he had to be sinlessly perfect. He, that, that, he, he did not inherit the sinful nature of Adam. He was born of the woman, the seed of the woman. He did not inherit the Adamic sinful nature. In that, he came as God. The virgin birth is important. 
to the deity of Christ. There was not a man involved in his birth. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and that holy thing that was conceived of her was called the Son of God. So, as divine and human, as divine, he was sinlessly perfect. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to wear your pages out in Hebrews this morning. Hebrews 7. Look at verse, and, and I would encourage you, you can, start at, you can start at Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 1 doesn't have a lot to say about his priesthood, but beginning in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 10, it is full of the priesthood of Christ. I'm just hitting the high points in it. But if you look at chapter 7, um, verse number 26, the Bible says, For such a high priest became us. There's his incarnation again. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for his people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So earthly priests, even if you look at the Old Testament, the high priest didn't go into the Holy of Holies. You might actually say he went twice a year, even though we, we usually say he only went once a year, but when we're talking about the once a year thing, we're talking about his atonement for the sins of the people. The reality is this, he had to go in the first time for himself. That's when they tied the bells around his feet. So that if he died while he was making consecration for his own sins, while he was making a sacrifice for his own sins, they could drag him out and not go in and die themselves. So he went at one time with a sacrifice for his own sin because he was an earthly priest and he was not a sinless priest. Then he went in the second time for the sins of the people. The Bible said Jesus didn't have to go in the first time for his own sins because he was harmless. Um, he was sinless. He was perfect. He was holy. He was separated from sinners. So he just went in one time to offer once and for all time a sacrifice not for his sin but for our sin. He was sinlessly perfect. He offered, he needed no offering for himself, but he offered everything for us. And let me say this, another sacrifice will never be needed. Another sacrifice will never be needed. Not on earth nor in heaven. Now I know there's a lot of people getting excited because it looks like the Jews are ready to set up the temple again. I, I, I don't know how many people sent me an article and I'm not mad that you sent it to me if you were one of them. But about those, about those red heifers that are being prepared to be purified so that they can rebuild a temple and consecrate it again for sacrifice. And you know, that may excite us because we see that there's a fulfillment of a biblical prophecy about the temple being used during the tribulation and we know the rapture precedes the tribulation so we can look at that and say, oh goody, that means Jesus is coming. But it's a sad thing that the Jewish people think that they still need a sacrifice. Because those sacrifices, the Bible said, never could take away sin to begin with. The sacrifice for sin has already been made once and for all time. The Lord Jesus Christ made the perfect sacrifice for sin, forever. Those Old Testament sacrifices were never enough. Jesus' sacrifice will never not be enough. It is altogether sufficient to save all of humanity from our sins. The second part of that divine and human thing, he had to be divine in order to offer that sinless, perfect sacrifice. 
born of a virgin, not with the sinful nature of Adam. But he also had to be tempted like we are and suffer like we are in order that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest and become sympathetic to us in our sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. This is one of the most popular passages of Scripture in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. I don't have the benefit of reading from a rear screen in, in, in here, so I'm looking at my Bible too. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So not only is his, in his divinity was he sinlessly perfect, but in his humanity um, he knows what we experience. He, he, he is sympathetic to us because he is able to identify with the weaknesses of the human flesh which makes him more concerned about us, which makes him more compassionate to us, which makes him able to care for us because he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to experience pain, to be, re to be rejected, to be lonely. He knows the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. But now we can come boldly to him because he is, the Bible says, because he is able. He is not only able, he is willing to help us. He's a merciful and faithful high priest because of his humanity. I shared this on, on I, honestly, I, I was studying. And sometimes I just have to stop studying and get up and walk around a little bit. And kind of draw my thoughts together. Sometimes I'll go sit out in the woods. And sometimes I'll just walk around and sing a little and pray a little. Or give me a little Debbie snack a little. But I'd been studying and I had honestly um, reached this place sympathetic to us. was making some notes and I got up and moved around a little bit. And when I sat back down at my computer, I checked my notifications on Facebook, see what's up. You know how we do Facebook. We have to check and make sure ain't nothing happening we don't know about. And the first thing that popped up on my screen was a quote from a group that I follow called Rough Cut Men. And it said this, We fall. We break. We fail. But with Jesus, we rise, we heal, we overcome, because He's sympathetic to us. He's merciful. He is concerned and compassionate and caring. He knows who we are. He knows what our frame is made out of. He knows that we're but dust. And Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives 
to make intercession for us. Jesus, don't ever get tired of standing in the gap for me and you. My mind, it goes back to the book of Zechariah, and I think it's chapter 10. Don't hold me to that. There's a little verse in the book of Ezra that says, when the people went back to rebuild the temple, they got some opposition from the outside, and they got discouraged, and they quit. They stopped the building process. And then it picks right back up again. And I think it's in chapter 5, verse 1. And basically it says that Haggai and, Zach, uh, Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the people and the work resumed. But what we, don't see in the, what we don't see in that particular text is that for 18 years, nothing happened. They quit work and didn't do anything for 18 years. And Joshua, who was the high priest at that, and not Joshua that led the march around Jericho, but another Joshua who was high priest, was the spiritual leader of the people. And Zerubbabel was the governor but the Bible gives us an, an image there of Joshua being ashamed that he hadn't encouraged the people and that the work had stopped and they hadn't, he hadn't done what he had been called to do. And the, and the Bible tells that, that Joshua, the high priest, went to stand before the Lord and, and was in filthy garments and that Satan stood there to accuse him. But that one came to his side that declared that Joshua was his. And he said, I want you to give him a new change in the clothes. I want you to, I want you to cleanse him from his filthiness. I want you to clothe him with righteousness. And I want you to crown him for the priest that he is. And that was Jesus. That's the role of Jesus. Satan stands to accuse us before God every day like he stood to accuse Job before God. Satan stands to accuse us before God every day, but Jesus stands to intercede with us before God every day. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Listen to me. I'm glad that today in heaven I got one standing at the right hand of God that is interceding for me every time I fall, every time I fail, every time I don't measure up. I've got one standing that is my all-sufficient advocate that will plead my case before my Father every day of my life for as long as I live and for as long as He lives, which is forever. He's sympathetic to us. He is able to save us to the uttermost. I love that word. That means all of us because He always lives. To intercede. He is eternal and exalted. Hebrews 7.24. You can back up from where we just read. This man. Because he continueth ever. Hath an unchangeable priesthood. All those other priests died. Every year, they, every time a priest died, they had to go through the process of appointing another priest. By the way, they had some good priests and they had some bad priests. Eli was not a good priest. His sons were not good in the priesthood. There's, there's examples in Scripture of priests who did not do what God called them to do. But the Bible says that Jesus continues forever and has an unchangeable priesthood. Go down to chapter 8, verse 1. 
Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus' role as our priest is not on earth, but in heaven. It is not temporary. It is eternal. All those temporal, earthly things, the, the tabernacle, the temple, the altars, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of those things were shadows of the substance. All of those things were put in place to point us to the one who would take their place. He is expectantly waiting. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to close right here in, these, in, in, in chapter 10 with several passages, several verses of Scripture. He is expectantly waiting. Look at verse 11. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, I'm going to call your mind back to Psalm 110.1 again. My Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God Verse 13 is the quotation from Psalm 110 and verse 4. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Two things going on there. Two things he is expectantly waiting for. That is, when his enemies become his footstool and when his redeemed rule and reign with him forever. It's a matter of God's timing when those things occur. But I can tell you this, today is a day of salvation. He's not yet returned as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He bears the title in our name, but he's not returned to claim his possession yet. His enemies have not yet been made his footstool. That comes when he returns as king. So he is expectantly awaiting for his enemies to become his footstool. And he is waiting for his redeemed to be with him and rule with him and reign with him forever. So today is the day of salvation. But there is a day of judgment that's going to come. Today he's interceding as a priest. But one day he's returning as king of kings and lord of lords. And we'll talk about that next week. Last point and I'm done. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. He is worthy of our devotion. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. And after everything he had said about Jesus being the high priest. Now he's, now he's bringing it to a close. Now he has more to say in the book of Hebrews. But regarding the priesthood of Christ, he has clearly identified that Jesus is the consummate and the great high priest who is not a priest on earth but is a priest in heaven. 
and, 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 and now that everything that we know about Jesus and his priesthood, this is what Paul says. Having therefore, brethren, verse 19, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's us. We have the opportunity to march right in to the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. We don't, we don't have to have a man to go in for us. He's already gone in for us. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. The veil of the temple is what separated the people from the holy place. When Jesus died on the cross and said it's finished, that veil was torn in two. And what that means is that you and I have access. We can go into the presence of God. I can stand boldly in the presence of God because of what Christ has done for me. By, he, he, he entered in and we can enter in by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the last thing that Paul said when he's talking about the priesthood of Christ is that he's worthy of our devotion. I, I, let me just summarize the verses like this. Paul said, draw near to him with assurance. Draw near to him with the full assurance of faith. He is your high priest. He will always be your high priest. He ever lives to intercede for you. He is God's reconciler. He is God's redeemer. Draw near to Him in assurance. Hold on to that without wavering. Hold fast without wavering. Don't move away from Him. Um, don't, 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 don't lose hope in Him. Don't lose faith in who He is and what He's done. And then lastly, encourage and support each other. That's how we show our devotion to Him. So listen, as our great high priest, Jesus Christ lives, present tense, not past tense. As our great high priest, Jesus Christ lives to give us all that we need to start this race, to run this race, to finish this race. We don't lack anything that He doesn't give us. And so with that said, let me ask you this question. What right do we have to withhold anything from Him when He's given us all that we need? I would say to you that it is our privilege and our honor as well as our responsibility to lay our life down at His feet every day. He's the last high priest the world will ever need. Because he's done everything that's necessary to save the world from its sin. All that's left for the world to do, all that's left for you to do if you don't know him this morning is to trust him. All you have to do to trust him is acknowledge that you are a sinner who cannot save yourself and that Christ is the only Savior who can. Because he is God's final priest. Lay your feet, lay your life down at His feet. Surrender yourself to Him. Submit yourself to Him. 
That's what it means to call Him Savior and Lord. And then I would say to you what Paul said, don't, don't pick that back up. Don't, don't do it one time and be forever finished with it. Draw near to Him. Stay, stay at His feet. I, I promise you this because I know from, from almost 30 years of experience now, there ain't a safer, more satisfying place for you to be than at the feet of Jesus. It don't matter how many times you fall. It don't how many how many times you fail. It don't it don't matter how many times you sin. It don't matter how grievous your sin. You'll never find a safer or more satisfying place to be than at His feet. He'll save you to the uttermost. He's saving us to the uttermost. He saved us from sin's penalty. He is saving us from sin's power. He will save us from sin's presence. The Bible says in that kingdom that He's going to give us that there's no sin that will ever enter in. Jesus is standing before God on our behalf today. Don't that make you feel good? It makes me feel safe and secure. Jesus is standing Actually, the Bible says he's sitting because he's done the work. You know when he stands? When we come home. He stood for Stephen's homecoming. Right now he's, he's sitting at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, standing before God on our behalf. And this is what he asked us to do. Stand before men on my behalf and declare me as Savior and Lord. Romans chapter 10, we always quote it when we're inviting people to be saved. That thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The 13th verse says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you keep reading, it says, For whosoever believeth in him will not be ashamed. Not be ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to declare you his brother before the Father. Hebrews tells us that too. He is not ashamed to call us his brother. We ought not be ashamed to call him our Savior and Lord before our family and our friends and our foes. He's worthy of that. Amen. As our musicians come this morning, would you stand with me? Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for who Jesus is. I'm grateful for all that Jesus has done. I'm grateful for everything that Jesus is doing for us. I'm grateful for everything that Jesus has promised us because not one thing will fail. Jesus, I'm thankful that you are not only a prophet who spoke to us on behalf of God, but that you're also our priest who speaks to your Father on behalf of us. I'm grateful this morning of all things that I've talked about this morning. I am profoundly grateful for two things, most of all, and that is that you paid the full price for all of our sins. 
And secondly, that you ever live to intercede for us. Apart from those two truths, there's not one person in this room or outside of this room even that would ever be saved. But because of those truths, there's not one person in this room or outside of this room that can't be saved. You will save to the uttermost everybody who comes to God through you. The only mediator between God and men, that's you, Jesus. And I pray, God, this morning that you would work in the hearts of those that are here if there's one that's lost. Jesus, I pray even now that you'd intercede for them. That the Holy Spirit would be dispatched. That conviction would fall. That a convincing would come. And that somebody here today would surrender their life forever and ever at your feet. Have your will and have your way. Do your work and we'll praise you for it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
have interceded for us even from our mother's womb. Thank you for your goodness that has run after us. Thank you for your faithfulness. All our life, you have been faithful. And all of our life, you will be faithful. And God, I pray that we'd leave this place with just a realization that there's a real, live, actual, literal, physical Jesus sitting at the Father's hand this morning to pray us home, to take us home. And we are grateful for that hope and for that assurance, Lord. I, I pray, God, as we close this service, that if there's one here today, you're the, only, you're the only one that knows hearts and thoughts and intents and motives of hearts. And the best we can do is look at fruit. And sometimes we make bad judgments there. But if there's one here this morning that's lost, that doesn't know what it, what it means or what it feels like to have sins forgiven, that has never submitted and surrendered their life to you. They're holding back for some reason. I pray that your conviction would rest upon them heavy and that before this day is done, they could, they could claim it as their day of salvation. Go with us as we leave. If the world ever needed to witness... It's the world that we live in right now. Help us to rise and shine. Help us to be the light that you've called us to be. And, and call people out of this darkness that they're living in. And we'll give you glory for it. Use us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.